I don't know about you, but it kind of feels like a lot longer than one week since we've been here. I don't know what it was about this week. It just seemed to make it feel like it's been a long time since we've been here. So I want to give us a little review. We've been working through Matthew 21 and 22. We just entered Matthew chapter 22. And we just dealt with three consecutive stories that Jesus told specifically to the religious leaders. And He told these stories as an indictment against them, a warning of impending judgment. If you remember with me, the first story was about a father with two sons. He told the sons to go work in the vineyard. One son said he'd go. He didn't go. The other son said he wouldn't go. And he went. Jesus tells that story to indict the religious leaders. The next story he tells about this landowner who builds this vineyard, hires these tenants to take care of the vineyard. They turn out to be wicked tenants. They kill all this man's servants that he sent to get his profits. They kill his son. Not a good situation. Again, Jesus tells a story to indict the religious leaders and to give them a warning of future judgment. Religious leaders don't like this at all and they want to seize Jesus. And Matthew tells us that they're unable to seize Jesus as they want to because the people still think very favorably of Jesus. Jesus reacts to this hostility by telling them another story. And that's the one about the king who created this big wedding feast for his son, invited all these people in his kingdom, people that he wanted to be there. None of them came, so he went out asking anybody and everybody to come to the wedding feast. They all filled the wedding hall. And there was one guy there that the king noticed wasn't wearing the appropriate wedding garments. He cast him out into some deep trouble. Again, Jesus told that story as an indictment against the religious leaders and really a warning for everyone who would not trust Jesus Christ and who he said he was. Well, After telling these three stories to religious leaders, they, they go off and they began to meet together in their groups. The Pharisees are meeting together, the Sadducees are meeting together, and they're trying to create plans in order to change the opinion, the popular opinion about Jesus. Remember, time-wise, we're only a few days out from the crucifixion. And the religious leaders know that if they're going to accomplish their goal of seizing Jesus and destroying Him, they have to change people's opinions about Him. And so they're off meeting and they're preparing to trap Jesus. And we're going to have three experiences here of religious leaders trying to trap Jesus and then Jesus is going to put a stop to it all. And so we've got this little mini-series that I've titled Three Traps and a Dead End. And we're starting that today here in Matthew 22. We'll work through the rest of 22. But today we're going to deal with trap number one. The Pharisees have gathered together to create this trap. Matthew 22, verse 15 and following. Now the last time we saw the Pharisees go and huddle up together in Matthew chapter 12, it was with the intent to destroy Jesus. Well, their intentions are no different here. They are trying to create a trap, a test, to put Jesus in disrepute among the people so that they can further accomplish their goal of seizing and destroying Jesus. I don't know if you've ever tried to trap something or not. Maybe when you were a kid you set up a box and a stick under it with a string around the side of the house and put some crumbs under it to try to trap a bird or a rabbit. Anybody ever do that? Success? No, probably not. It's not that easy to trap animals. In fact, I, I was looking at uh, some, some information on trapping animals and I discovered 
Not that I really want to do this, but I discovered that trapping coyotes is one of the most difficult things you can try to do as a trapper. Apparently, coyotes can smell uh, the human scent very easily. It takes a lot of preparation, a lot of patience. You've got to do all this special stuff with the equipment, wax it and wash it and get it scent free. You've got to build this hole and do all this stuff with bait. It's unbelievable what they go through to trap this stupid animal, a coyote, that most people just want to shoot with a rifle. I mean, they do all this stuff to try to trap them. It's crazy. Very difficult to accomplish. Well, here you have the Pharisees. They've gathered up and they're working very hard to come up with something that would trap the most amazing man they've ever encountered. How do you think they're going to come out? Probably not much better than me trapping a coyote. It's just not going to work in their favor. So here we got the Pharisees. They've done this, and now they've come to Jesus after making this plan, and they're going to set the trap and see what happens. So let's look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Let's read through the passage, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. And the Pharisees went and they, they plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. Now, I'm going to read this literally here, so just follow along with me. And you teach the way of God in truth. And it is not a care to you concerning anyone, for you do not see into the face of man. Okay, now let me tell you what, you you follow along in your translation, and what you're going to see there is that they've said to Jesus, you are true, you're sincere and genuine in what you're doing. You teach the way of God in truth. In other words, everything you're saying is right in line with what is true about God. Everything you're doing is true. And he says, you don't really care about anybody else. You don't defer to someone. You don't pay attention to what somebody else is saying and alter what you're doing based on what they're saying. You are speaking authoritatively. Then you don't pay attention to the face of man. You are no respecter of persons. Just because someone has a title doesn't mean you're going to change what you say because they may feel they're more important than you are. You're going to speak what is right and true. Now, that's what they say about Jesus, all right? Let's keep going. Therefore, tell us what you think. Is it necessary to give the poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show to me the coin of the poll tax. And they brought him the denarius, the coin. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said, In Caesar. Then he said to them, Therefore give what is Caesar's to Caesar, and what is God's to God. And after they heard this, they were amazed. And they departed and they went away from him. So, the Pharisees have gathered together and formulated a plan 
and their plan involved sending some of their followers. They weren't going to go themselves, and so instead they sent some of their followers. So there's these guys who have been following or learning from the disciples, from, from the Pharisees, just like the disciples are following Jesus, learning from him. The Pharisees have guys who are learning from them about how to be a Pharisee. And so the Pharisees send some of their followers along with these guys called the Herodians. Now, let me give you a little lesson in how to understand your Bible. It's a preview for the study I'm going to start Wednesday night. Um, When you see something you don't know about, like the Herodians, you want to allow Scripture to give you the information needed to understand what's happening here. Now, when it comes to the Herodians, we don't know anything biblically about these guys. There's nothing in Scripture. They're only mentioned a couple more times in the Gospels. All we know is their name and the context of this situation. So we have to figure out what it is we need to know about the Herodians from what we're given here in order to know what they're about and how they fit into the story. Well, all we know basically is the name. But by the name, we can figure these guys must have something to do with Herod, King Herod and his succession. And because there's two groups, the followers of the Pharisees and the Herodians that have come, there must be some kind of difference in their value system that's creating this potential trap for Jesus. Now we're going to see that play out as we work through exactly the question that they've asked Jesus. So what you've got is here, you've got this group of people that's loyal to the kingly line of the succession of the Herodians, They have some interest in the line of rule by the Herods among the people of Israel. Now, what we do know is that Rome is in control of Israel. And these Herodians want Herods to still be ruling what they're allowed to rule under the Romans. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they are really concerned with fulfilling the law of God. They're really keen on how to exactly, minutely follow everything that God has said in the Old Testament in terms of the law. So they're very concerned with being loyal to God's Word in the Old Testament. So you have these two groups that have come to Jesus and they're going to present to Him a question. But what they do before they present a question is that they speak some words to Jesus. Now, these words sound really, really good, but they sound too good to be coming from Jesus' opponents. They save Jesus. Let me just walk through this again with you. They save Jesus that he is true. And we would affirm all these things about Jesus because we believe in who he is. But these things are coming from the mouths of those who have been opponents against Jesus, the followers of the Pharisees. And so they say, Jesus, we know you're true. You're genuine. You're sincere. You embody truth. And the things that you're teaching are being taught in the way of God. You line up with everything that's truthful. And we know that what you're doing is authoritative. You don't pay attention to titles opinions that are contrary to what you think. You assert what you know to be true in a way that is above all other authority. Now, these guys have just poured on the flattery. 
Why is that? It's a part of the plan. They're not saying things that they believe are true about Jesus. They're saying things that they hope will work as bait to lure Jesus into the trap. You see, they're assuming that if they will flatter Jesus first and then ask Him a question, that He might make a mistake and respond to the flattery and give a quick answer without much thought and walk right into that trap and let it spring on Him. They have baited Jesus with flattery. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice about these four descriptors of Jesus is they're really great things to be said about Him. I mean, it's really a nice thing for it to be said that you're a genuine, sincere person, that the things you're doing are right in line with God's Word, and you're not deferring to any authority that's contrary to what God wants. You you are, I mean, that's good stuff, but this is bait to lure Jesus into a trap. So they lay out the bait, they set the trap, and then they ask their question. Their question is the trap. And they say, why don't you tell us what you think? I love that they do that. You know, they lay out the flattery. Everything you say is good. Everything you say is right. We believe in what you say. You speak and we listen. So what do you think about this? Answer our question. Is it lawful or is it necessary to give the poll tax to Caesar. Now, just like in the case of the Herodians, all we need to know is that they share a different opinion than the Pharisees, and these two groups have been set up in order to create the trap. We'll see that unfold here in the question. Here we have this term, the poll tax of Caesar. All you need to know is what's here in the context. It's a tax that's given to Caesar. They are aware of it. They're under the rule of it. The Pharisees are asking, is this right or is this wrong? Now, the last time we saw Jesus deal with any kind of tax issue was back in, I think, Matthew chapter 17. He was dealing with the temple tax. And somebody came to Peter and said, well, isn't your teacher going to pay the the temple tax? Do you remember this story? And, And Jesus is aware of what's happened, so he goes to Peter and says, Peter, do the sons pay the tax to the king or do strangers? And Peter says, strangers. And Jesus says, well, so that we don't offend them, here's what I want you to do. And then we have this description of fly fishing in the Bible. You remember that story? Peter's to go out, throw the hook in the water. The first fish that comes up, he's to take, get the coin out, go pay the temple tax. Now, that's the last time we heard Jesus address the issue of tax. That is a different tax than we're dealing with here. That was one that dealt with the temple. Now we have one dealing with the Roman government. This is a poll tax the citizens had to pay, obviously, and it was a governmental tax. In the previous occurrence, Jesus didn't address the issue of government. He was addressing the issue of church. All right? Now he's addressing this question that the Pharisees bring that is the trap. And it's related to the authority of the government. So the poll tax from Caesar. Is it lawful for us to do this? Now here's the trap. This is a yes-no question. This is a question that's expecting a yes or no answer. Is it lawful for us to do this, yes or no? That's what they're expecting. And when they ask the question, they are wanting Jesus to simply say yes or no. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about yes-no questions, but yes-no questions can be potentially harmful. I mean, think about if one of our students here 
Um, let's see which one of you guys are paying attention really well this morning. Uh, Carson is, looks like he's paying attention. Let's say that Carson walks up to Andrew and says to Andrew, Andrew, I've got two questions for you, yes or no. That's your answers. So here they are. First question, have you stopped cheating on your chemistry stuff? Andrew's going to be like, uh, wait a minute. Can I answer some other way here? Okay, well, if you can't answer that, answer the second question. Second question, have you told Penelope that you like her yet? Okay, I'm done with the questions. Immediately you recognize that's a trap because if you say, yes, I've told her, or no, I have not, you've implicated yourself into liking her. You see how the yes-no question is a trap. Are you all with me here? So that's exactly what the Pharisees have done. They've constructed a question that they believe will push Jesus into a corner and answer yes or no to. If he answers yes, that it's lawful or necessary to pay the poll tax, who has he made friends with? The Herodians. Because they don't want to upset the Roman government. They want things to continue as is so that their ruling party is able to be in charge. So if he says, yes, it's lawful to pay that, then he has sided with the Herodians. He's made himself uh, an enemy against those who would say, we want Rome not to rule over us. If he says, it is not necessary for us to pay the poll tax, he creates an issue between himself and the Romans, but sides with the Pharisees. The Herodians are upset. The Romans are mad. He puts himself in a position of uh, disrepute there. So either way he answers the question, and the Pharisees have thought this out, Either way he answers the questions, we got him. We're going to be able to discredit him. We're going to be able to show people that he's not who he says he is. We're going to make him look the fool. And we're going to be able to move forward with our plans to destroy him. We've got him. What's crazy about this is these Pharisees have spent all kinds of time planning out the perfect trap. And they think they've got Jesus right where they want him. But we haven't heard Jesus yet speak. And then Jesus, I love what he says here. He says, knowing their wickedness. Now here's how I can interpret that. He smells the scent of wickedness and he sees their trap. He smells it out. And this is what he says to him: Why are you testing me? It's a profound question. Why are you testing me? I want you to hang on to that question. We're going to come back to that. And then he says, you hypocrites. So he, right out of the bag, he makes it clear to them that he knows what they're up to. I can smell what you're up to. I can see this trap. I'm going to walk through it unscathed. You guys shouldn't be doing this to me. You are hypocrites. He takes their flattery and he dashes it to the ground like a poorly made pinata. I mean, he just ruins it. He says that flattery is nothing. And he just destroys it by calling them hypocrites. Now, I want to be clear. I want to take a little detour this morning because we're going to encounter this word hypocrites multiple times in chapter 23. And I'm going to do this again when we get to 23, but I'm going to do it this morning. I want to clarify for us what this word really means. And here's the reason. Because I frequently hear people say things like this. 
the church is full of hypocrites. Anybody else ever heard that? I want to see your hands. You've ever heard that? I'm not alone. We must be talking to the same people. Now here's what I've discovered. That most of the time that comment comes from somebody that has a connection to the church. They've either been involved in the church in the past and because of something that happened in the church are no longer involved or they're using that excuse as a reason why they're not going to get involved. They're just going to attend and kind of be on the periphery and just be observing because it's not safe to get involved because the church is full of hypocrites. You guys identify with what I'm describing here? I feel like a lot of times that description of the church comes from what I would classify at some level church-associated people. And no doubt there are people in the world that never darken the doors of church say that, and that's the reason they don't want to come. But I think a lot of people within the church at different levels might actually have that opinion. And I want to set the record straight today. The church is not full of hypocrites. Now let's make sure we understand exactly what Jesus means when he uses this word hypocrite. He is describing these folks who came to him with all this flattery. And he says to them, you're hypocrites. What he has just defined for us is the meaning of this word hypocrite. And what he is, has defined is that anyone who plays a part for their own benefit, knowingly playing that part, but not believing it at all, is a hypocrite. So it's somebody who is pretending to be something they know they are not for their own end. That is a hypocrite. Now, I I know that there are times in the life of the church when we have genuine hypocrites come in these doors. The Bible warns us against them. People who masquerade as if they are believers but they know they are not believers, and the only reason they're masquerading that way is to destroy the things of Jesus Christ because they are being used as instruments of the enemy to bring down the cause of Christ. The Bible warns us against people like that, and we are to be on guard, and we are to keep ourselves safe from those kind of people. But those kind of people do not fill the church. They infiltrate the church. Do you see the difference here? Let me tell you what kind of people fills the church. Now, I can speak best about Southside because I know our church fairly well and I know many of you. So let me tell you the kind of people that fill our church. I think we're probably representative of a lot of churches. Here we go. Don't take personal offense at this. Here's the kind of people that fill our church. Imperfect people. That's, That's what we are. We're just imperfect. Here's what I mean by that. We are a people who want to love Christ more. We want to reflect His holiness. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. We want to function together as a body of believers to the glory of Christ. But we struggle with sin. And we have this body that's broken by our sin. We live in this world that's broken by sin. And we together are imperfect people, depending as best we can, hopefully in an increasing measure, upon the grace of God, 
to prepare us to be a ready bride for the return of Christ. Did you know in all reality, the people inside the church are just like the people outside the church, save the fact that we grab hold of the hope of redemption. We have the Spirit of God conforming us by His will and power to be ready for Jesus Christ to express His victory over death and sin by bringing His bride home. We're a place full of imperfect people. We're not a place full of hypocrites. We want to follow Christ. I hope you don't forget that difference. Now back to the story. All right. Jesus says, you hypocrites. Then he asked them a very simple question. This is the most self-evident question he could have asked. He said, hey, uh, bring me the coin. And they bring him the coin, and I could just see him holding it up and asking the question. I'm sure these guys' faces have just got to be puzzled. Like, what is he up to? What is he doing? What does he want the coin for? What is, here's the coin. What is he going to say? What's going on? And they're looking at each other, and he holds the coin. Whose image and inscription is on this? Well, duh. We've been paying the poll tax all our lives. We know Caesar. You know, and, and Jesus then, with their self-evident, with the self-evident question and the, and the simple answer, he then turns the whole thing upside down. And he says... Then give what is Caesar to Caesar and what is God's to God. Absolutely astounding. They come with this this test, this trap they've spent all this time bringing together and Jesus completely destroys it with one simple question. His question leaves both sides, the followers of the Pharisees and the Herodians, without a word to say. They're both completely unable to rebuke his answer. They're speechless. In fact, they are amazed. And they go back to tell the Pharisees that the trap didn't work. You see, there's nobody like Jesus Christ and nothing like the truth he teaches. There's one lesson I want us to get from this little trap. Now, so we don't skip over what's in the context, I want to make mention of the fact that Peter and Paul, in their writings, take um, what is established here by Jesus in terms of a person's relationship to other authorities under the sovereign authority of God And they make application of this teaching to the home, to the church, and to the government. And you can look at that in both Peter and Paul's writings. Jesus is simply expressing here that God is authoritative over all things, but expresses His authority through other authorities. And that if you care about the authority of God, then you will honor other God-established authorities in a God-honoring way. That's his answer to the Pharisees. Look, if you guys cared about God at all, then you would know that you need to honor all the authorities that God has established over your life in an honor in a way that honors God. So Jesus dispels this trap by addressing the issue of authority. 
And I want to make that clear. I don't want to go too far on that because there's a lesson here in the context I want you to really grab. But I do want you to see here that how you live with authority in your life, the authority of the government, I don't want to step on any toes this morning, but if you don't like our government leaders, if, if you have things to say about our president that wouldn't be favorable, I want to caution you. It's not wrong to have differing opinions in those who rule over us. You need to remember that Romans chapter 13 tells us that every governing authority is established by God. And if you act, speak in a way that does not respect the authority God has placed over us, you're not just speaking about that authority. You're speaking about God. You may not like some of the things the government does. I don't. But we better live that out in a respectful way, in a way that we're on our knees before the Lord who established that authority. That he would be glorified in it. I mean, we keep going down the line. Church authority. School authority. School. There's authority there. Home. Workplace. I mean, how, how do you live under the authority of your boss? Is it as unto the Lord? I mean, you render to the authorities that God has established over you the things that are theirs in a way that honors God because you understand there is nothing more authoritative than God's sovereignty over you and all you experience. How are you doing with authority? That's certainly here. But there's something even more applicable, I think, to our daily lives that we cannot miss. And it comes out of the question, why are you testing me? See, these Pharisees, they wanted to test Jesus in order to discredit him, to prove that he's not who he says or claims that he is, to make him a mockery in front of the people so no one would follow him. They wanted to completely destroy who he was claiming to be. I doubt that any of us in here have the opinion or the goal to discredit Jesus, that he's not who he says he is. I suspect that most of us in here this morning are not going to be like the Pharisees and wanting to test Jesus in this manner so that Jesus looks like a fool and I looked better. I mean... I don't know that there's anybody here that says, I want to live my life in such a way that everybody that thinks great of Jesus would, because they watch me, thinks poorly of Jesus and great of me. I don't think there's many of us in here like that. But I do think that at times we have the tendency to go in the direction of testing Jesus. Of living our lives in such a way as the way we live makes it appear that we don't really believe that Jesus is who He says He is. We, we, we at times have a tendency to go in the direction of testing. And let me give you a couple of examples. Everyone in here would affirm that the Bible teaches that we are to be stewards of what God has given us which necessitates our generous giving. The Bible is very clear. 
that followers of Christ are to give out of what God has given them to support the local church. That is very clear in Scripture. We know that is what God commands. And yet some of us, a friend of mine, is going through a stewardship study in his church. And he did a study and he determined that 40% of his congregation gives nothing to the church. Zero. Another friend of mine just went through a stewardship study about six months ago. Did the same study in his church. Guess what he discovered? 40% of his congregation give nothing to support the church. That's two of my friends looked at the statistics in their church and determined that their churches have 40% of the people not giving anything to the support of the ministries of the church. Now, I'm not going to tell you what our percentages are today because I don't know them today. But if you are in a position in your life where you know you should be faithful in stewardship, but you are justifying reasons why you are not being faithful, you know, you've come up with reasons why it's just not possible right now, why it's not easy right now, why it's okay before the Lord to do this, why we can. And you're rationalizing all these ways you can knowingly be disobedient to something God has clearly said while all the while you're trying to be obedient all the other areas of your life and you have expressed at some level some hesitancy towards repentance in an area you know you should repent. That's putting Jesus to the test. Having an area of your life where you are less than willing to be repentant and using all the other areas that you're doing well in to justify this one area that's knowingly not okay. Putting Jesus to the test like that, living like who he says he is is not really who he is, will never benefit your life. It always backfire on you. Because you can't put Jesus into a test and win that test. It's just a lot better to trust him. No matter what. In following in what he said. Let me give you another example. Let's say in the context of church life, you get into a conflict with somebody else in the church. And you have feelings that you're harboring against them in your heart. And you know that you have unforgiveness or hurt or pain or issues between this person. There's tension. You are not okay. If you were stuck in the room by yourself with them, it would not be a good moment. It would be tense. You would not want to talk to them. You'd not want to be there. But for some reason, you're just not willing to make the effort for reconciliation. You don't think it'll work. You don't think it'll be worth it. You don't think it'll be fun. It'll be hurtful. It'll be dangerous. You have all these reasons why you are not seeking to be at peace within the body of Christ. And everywhere else in your life, you're trying to obey the Lord, but this one area where you know you're not obedient, you're just ignoring because it's just too hard, it's just too difficult, you don't know what to do, and you're trying to focus on the areas that you're obedient. And guess what? That's putting Jesus to the test, and it doesn't work, it's a mistake, you never win. What's better is just to trust Him and move towards Christ in the area you know you should follow Him. Does that make sense? You cannot put Jesus Christ to the test in your life and win out. Let me give you one more way we we tend to do this. 
When something happens in our lives that we cannot forecast, anticipate, and we certainly didn't plan for, we can have the tendency to then begin to live in a way that says, Jesus, I don't believe that you are in control. We can live in a way that displays incredible frustration, incredible anger, incredible bitterness. You ripped me off. How to get this raw deal? You can go through all of this stuff because things didn't go as you anticipated or planned or hoped for. And you can begin to blame Christ or blame this or blame that. And all the while what you're really doing is you're conveying that you don't believe Jesus who He says He is. That He's in control. That His way is best. That if you follow Him and trust Him through the difficulty, you'll find that He can redeem any of the junk that this world puts us in. Don't put Jesus to the test in the wrong direction. Put Jesus to the test in the right direction by trusting Him fully. We don't want to be a people who live like the Pharisees. They want to play a part just to get our own way. If you want to summarize what I've said today, you could summarize it in the simple statement, don't become a hypocrite. Don't become someone who just plays a part in order to get your own way. Christianity is not about getting your way. It's a submission to the authority of God because you know His way is best. Hey, I know life can sometimes deal us some stuff that's no fun at all. But don't put Jesus to the test by reflecting in your life something that Jesus is not. Just trust Him. It's a whole lot better just to follow Him and to trust Him. You can't outthink Him. You can't outsmart Him. You can't outwit Him. You can't get outside of His authority. There's nobody like Jesus Christ. It's just a whole lot better to follow Him. That's what I want to invite you to do today. To follow Him. If there's any area of your life you've not been following Christ knowingly, then repent. Stop testing Him in the wrong direction and test Him through believing He will be faithful. There's nobody like Jesus.